0: As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation member, FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
1: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations.
2: If you are part of Global Wall Street, this is the point where you stop on radio, on television, and you listen. In this banking crisis, you need somebody that is so uh, knowledgeable on it. And at Middlebury College a few years ago, studied back the 10 banking crisis back to Jackson. That would be Thomas Michaud. Thomas Michaud is CEO of KBW. We're thrilled he could join us uh, this morning here. Within the crisis perspective is, well, how's the week been? What what? What's the biggest sweat this week for you on a day-to-day
3: grind? Well, first of all, it's been nonstop. You know, you really can't have markets work and economy work if the banking system's not working. And it's really, it's a step beyond that because it it's creates a lack of confidence. You mentioned earlier about a history of bank panics. You can argue whether it was eight, nine, or ten, but let's say roughly ten bank panics in the history of the United right. States. It's not it, – it is – look, banks made mistakes. We just had the second and third largest bank failure uh, in American history. But – The banking industry is built on confidence, and when confidence is shaken, it could Mm. absolutely impact the whole economy.
2: 1831, National Bank of Middlebury, a perfect (laughs) example of a small bank going, wait, they're going to come in here, cash out, and give it to James Diamond? Explain to us the dynamic right now of the National Banks of Middlebury out there, scared stiff of those top five. Well, banks. so first of all, so
3: it's not only National Bank of Middlebury, which actually is a bank that, that you mentioned specifically, but it's but it, the big banks lead the global banking system. This is a, an industry where the American big banks lead the global financial system. That's number 1. But it's really the mid-sized banks that I think we want need to talk about. And if let's just say for round numbers, the big banks today have 60 percent of the deposits in America. There is they do not make 60 percent of the loans to middle America and small America. So if the deposits are going to the big banks, but they're not the ones making the loans to middle and small America, it's going to have an impact on the economy. And I think long term down the road we're not going to be in a good place but the last thing is you would say why is that happening tom because there's this implicit guarantee that banks can be too big to fail we just saw it with credit suisse there was really no worry that counterparties of credit suisse weren't going to be made whole and if that is the is the sense of the land, it's going to drive business away from these mid-sized banks and I think is going to have a detrimental effect on the economy.
4: So why haven't the steps that the FDIC, that the Federal Reserve, that the Treasury Department already have taken to basically de facto ensure all deposits for most mid-sized banks been enough to really garner that support that they're backstop to?
3: We got close, Lisa, but we didn't go the distance. So uh, Secretary Yellen, when she spoke... Still left the door open between implicit and explicit. And look, if you saw what the first reaction was at the FDIC with Silicon Valley, it was to give certificates, not deposits money back. So I think that actually accelerated the outflows of banks on that Friday. Um, And I think what we need is orderliness. My preference would be if the administration came out right now and said, we're going to use our our authorities and we're going to say that any bank that fails of any size for the next year, we're going to guarantee the deposits while we figure this out, I think it would be very good for the economy.
4: Putting longstanding solutions aside for a minute, you talked about how a lot of these smaller banks punch above their weight when it comes to lending. How much have you actually heard of tightening of lending standards, of actually retracing some of the loans that some of these regional banks have been making?
3: It's going to be the story of the second half of 2023 that that is happening. It was happening before we had the recent bank bank run. It was happening before that. And I'll tell you that story. As soon as COVID started, the first thing that happened over 24 months Was about $5 trillion of deposits came into the banking system. We had 13 trillion go to 18. Never in my career have I seen the deposit system grow that quickly. That was the COVID relief and the stimulus coming into the system. Mm -hmm. It's now being drained as a purposeful part of our policy. So we are probably, according to our numbers, still. 10% 10% too high in terms of surge COVID deposits. So the industry's sort of fighting two competitive elements. Number one is FDIC deposits are shrinking as a part of government policy. That's going to be a tightening effect in the economy. And then number two, we have this confidence, which is a little bit shaken, which by the way, it's gotten better. I want to make sure it's gotten better, but it's still shaken. And that is driving deposit flows, too. So it's yeah. it's really turmoil in the economy, which is going to slow the economy.
2: Keep talking. You're lifting the two-year yield. I got bad news, Thomas. showed it for you. You're not the most important person at Keith Brayette and Woods. Jade Romani is. Right now, when you look at commercial real estate and his work in mortgages and your security analysts, what you guys are known for— for decades at KBW. Jade Romani is 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 the guy on what's gonna happen with commercial real estate. What's he telling you when you call him?
3: So about a month ago, we came out with this call because the other thing is this banking issue is not just the banking, it's not specific just to banks. What we're dealing with is when interest rates go up this fast, there are implications and there will be other implications. So we wrote a report about a month ago that Jade led the mm-hmm. author, You've good memory Tom, and, uh, and he said basically he thinks there's 30% downside in office buildings in major markets around the country with about half of that due to the cap rates and about half of it due just to factors of, uh, of other factors around occupancy and inflation. You're already seeing it. This is a more slow motion event. It's going to take right. two years to play out, but that's the next. That's the next. Okay, asset what's, class what's it mean re-value. for
2: global Wall Street? What's it mean? I'm selfish here. What's it mean for the people of Manhattan, including Bramo And what's it mean critically for our viewers and listeners if we're going to see a 30% negative?
3: I just think it's going to. It's. It, I think it's going to impact economic growth, and I think it'll just mean that we're not going to have a. In my opinion, I think that will be a headwind. For economic growth as all the industries adjust around that. And it is going to cause banks to tighten their lending criteria, which in and of itself is a big form of and, and quasi-quantitative Lisa, you see this tightening.
2: in car loans right now. I mean, I, I'm reading about it percolating in. You can't go out, you know, there's a general statement, you can't go out and get an auto loan now because they're tightening up.
4: Yeah, and, I think there was something like the lending that a lot of them have been rejected, Tom.
3: But, but don't remember, too, we just came through a period where zero interest rates was the rocket fuel for shadow banking. So and now we're going to we're going to dial that back somewhat, too, in my opinion, which will be will be in effect for slower growth.
4: There's a confluence of a lot of different factors here, and teasing out all of the different interconnected pieces can be tough. I want to go back to something that you said, that we're still about 10% elevated when it comes to the deposits, the cash sort of awash in the banking system. And you talked about how that's going to get withdrawn and that that's going to have a sort of accelerating, tightening feature to the economy. Is that deposit base going to disproportionately leave those regional banks? In other words, it might be 10% of overall deposits, but a much greater portion of just the specific smaller and mid-sized banks, given the consolidation of deposits in some of the big behemoths? It
3: it actually was going to leave the bigger banks more because they're bigger. So for example, our estimate is roughly $60 billion, I think, we were gonna see come out of J.P. Morgan uh, this quarter, and now it'll be less because of this remixing. But even Jamie Dimon's been in his calls talking about the fact that he saw hundreds of billions of dollars of shrinkage in its deposits. But I don't want to alarm anybody by that because the industry has been planning for that and knew that that was going to happen. And remember, when we talk about it, what is that? Well, that's the Fed shrinking the money supply. It's also depositors buying treasury bonds because they yield more rather than bank deposits. That's cash sorting. So I think it's navigable, but but if we put a, 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 a crisis around it, it just makes it trickier.
4: Given the likely increase in flows out of some of these deposits, given commercial real estate and the stress there, given the shadow banking system and potential fractures that people are expecting there, do you think that this banking crisis is over?
3: I I think every day that goes by, we're getting more stability. I think Washington wants it to stop. I think barring any other major shocks, I think it's it's behind us and that we can now Deal with some of the more yeah. challenged institutions. But also, too, if I if we had more time and I laid out the statistics of Silicon Valley. It was off the charts on a couple of risk measures. Yeah, no, I question. mean, off the charts. Yeah. You, and, and remember, we have 4,700 banks in the United States. Right. Two of them have failed spectacularly and quite large, so we're not underestimating the impact. No, I of got eight
2: it. ways to go here. I, I got time for one question. Somebody emails in here, and this was an honor to play at Middlebury years ago when Wendell Forbes was coaching. <laughs> when in God's name is Middlebury going D1 hockey? They were born to play D1, <laughs> D1 ECAC hockey. When does this happen? It's You're in charge. Uh,
3: Middlebury's good, and I got to tell you. Now baseballs made a run at Middlebury, but when I played baseball, we got our fans when they walked past the field to go watch lacrosse. But well, now baseball's the standing. But lacrosse I'm, I'm, I'm looking baseball. All the lacrosse does get
2: all the visibility. When do you guys go D one hockey? <laughs> it was made to happen.
3: I, I, I would support that. We've got a great. There we team, go. That's the you. news
2: we need to have today. Thank Thomas you. showed of Middlebury with the support up Route Seven, and of course, a small matter at KBW, definitive on banking
0: research.
2: Stumbling yeah, through God. a Wednesday, Edward Alassane, joins us right now, senior interest rate strategist at Columbia Thread. and really being in the news with a nice write-up, I believe, in the FT recently. And I'm going to cut to the chase. And you nail this, working in international economics at Harvard years ago. So much about these moments and these crises is fear of making a mistake. That invades monetary policy, including Martin Wolf's wonderful essay today, what are we afraid of making as a mistake in our new central bank policy?
5: Yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult because you're balancing three different elements. You don't know what's going on with inflation. You don't know how quickly monetary policy is filtering into the real economy. And now you don't know uh, what's happening with the banking sector and the extent to which that's going to affect growth and inflation uh, down the line. And you have to prioritize these unknowns. Inevitably, in my, uh, in my mind, the Fed's going to prioritize inflation. They
2: have to prioritize inflation. We've got a dual mandate. Maybe we have a triple mandate, as Steve Roach invented, talking about financial stability. Can financial stability weigh in on a May 3rd Fed meeting debate?
5: Very unlikely. I, In, in my mind, uh, they've done a really good job of separating the two, at least on paper. In practice, more than anything, they've been lucky in the sense that this particular banking crisis hasn't spiraled, particularly hasn't spiraled into credit markets. So I think they can take comfort in the fact that the liquidity facilities they put in, uh, what the FDIC has done, that's rig-fenced some of the issues, at least at this point. And again, when they get to the May meeting, uh, it's more likely than not that they'll be able to refocus on inflation once again.
4: Does it make sense to you that we've priced in, at one point, almost 100 basis points of rate cuts by early next year? We've retraced that a little bit,
5: but not that much it's been very violent. It's been, very, it's been exceptionally violent, right? So we, we went from you know, peak rate of you know, 5.7, and, and the Fed on hold in the second half of the year, uh, just three weeks ago, uh, to now the Fed entering an aggressive easing cycle in the second half. Um, uh, you know, which scenario is, is, is most appropriate to the data? Uh, I would say something that's closer to a hold. But, but now that the, you know, the banking system genies out of the bottle, it's, it's exceptionally difficult to price out an easing cycle Uh, and a recession being brought forward. And that's, that's what markets are really struggling with. So
4: here's the dissonance. Risk assets are rallying, perhaps because you're seeing perhaps a slower pace of rate hikes or rate cuts. Does this make sense if the only way that we get that is with the pain that comes with some sort of either crisis or massive credit tightening?
5: Yeah, it's been interesting. You know, risk, again, to some extent, is reflecting two things in my mind. One, the underlying strength of the economy and the underlying underlying strength of corporate balance sheets uh, is still with us. That's something we entered the year with. We've we've talked to that uh, you know at length, um, and has been actually been one of the frustrations for the Fed. The other thing is, interest rate volatility, which exploded in the course of the past uh, couple of weeks, is starting to cool down, particularly in the longer part of the curve. That's that's a positive backdrop for risk assets. We see. It, let's say in investment-grade markets, markets start to, starting to open up. Not quite so uh, primary markets in, in high yield. Um, so it's a different degree of tension that's priced across risk and rates at this point. Um, I would expect those two stories to, to connect in, in the coming months.
4: If the Fed does cut rates as the market's pricing in, do you start to get less constructive on 10-year treasuries, which you have been perhaps overweight?
5: Uh, we like them. I mean, look, if the Fed cuts, One of the things that the last couple of weeks has illustrated to us is that treasuries once again play a very, very effective role as a buffer against risk. That negative correlation between rates and risk returned in the course of the past three weeks as people sought a a safe haven asset in the face of, of heightened recession risk. That's fantastic. So if the Fed's cutting, they are seeing something on the horizon that's disinflationary, that's bringing down inflation, that's potentially bringing down growth. That's a really good story for Treasuries. We can argue about where you want to be on the curve in that kind of environment, but you want to be long duration uh, and long interest rate risk in, in that environment.
6: Hi, hey Ed. Great to catch up, as always. And Al sunny there of Columbia Threadneedle. Ed, thank you. Let's get to Jeff Yu, senior markets strategist at BNY Mellon. Jeff, I think reflecting on yesterday, and thanks for being with us, Jeff, reflecting on yesterday, just trying to work out whether we have a regulatory problem or an enforcement problem. Which one is it?
7: Morning, John. Uh, well, uh, I think um, the regulators, politicians, all of them—they you know, are going to be looking uh, at this and um, globally. You know, Tom, you mentioned uh, after uh, each event over the last few decades, you know, they do, you know, they do have the discussion at least. Now I'll just point you to what Sam Woods, you know, head of the PRA, said yesterday, already calling for a tightening of liquidity rules, you know, so uh, liquidity coverage ratios um, to make sure uh, that uh, all banks, you know, have enough cash. Right. So I think it's it is going to be a bit of a both, You know, looking at the you know, global situation uh, but crucially for central banks right now they also really want to steer mm-hmm. the discussion away from the impact of monetary policy as well financial stability price stability they are separate
2: uh, Jeff you, you're at London School of Economics this morning and Magnon Lord Desai Lord Desai is down with a piece of chalk in his hand and he's lecturing on the general equilibrium of the system are we super restrictive right now in our general equilibrium are we at a point of over restriction
7: well, you know, uh, as part of a dynamic process, it really depends on where your starting point is, right? I think all of them would agree with that. Uh, but the problem is, you only find out you are too restrictive, you know, after the fact. Um, but based on all of the communication we've had from global central banks and everyone's taking a leaf out of uh, Madame Lagarde's book, right now they're still comfortable hiking rates, inflation, managing price stability. That has to remain a priority. And as long as that's the messaging, and looking forward to hearing from that lineup, as you mentioned, um, I don't think we are in fully restrictive territory yet, you look at credit spreads, you you look at where the dollar is, um, I think policymakers will say they can do more.
4: When will we start to see, Jeff, the effects of potential credit tightening from some of these regional banks? When will we get that data?
7: Uh, well, I think the data, uh, we really have to monitor the twofold. You know, one is just basically the credit data, you know, is loan demand, loan growth, and loan officer surveys. Are they picking up, are they showing a clear material sign of, of things in coming off? Um, but at the same time, then the realized um, data, the hard data, are mortgages, um, are they starting to come off? You know, mortgage approvals, things like that you know, globally. But that will take time. You know, there is a lag process, as, as Governor Bailey has highlighted. But let's be clear, the event over the last few weeks has been an equivalent two. T- tightening It'll be different in different jurisdictions. Uh, but this certainly you know, has slowed the overall process of rate hikes.
4: Are you sympathetic, Jeff, to the stock bulls who are saying if you look around right now, things still look good. And if the Fed cuts rates, that will make things only look better. So perhaps you can worry, but you're just worrying in a sort of vacuum of information.
7: Yes, I am sympathetic to risk on, but nothing to do with the Fed. If anything, I think the Fed and global central banks, they will keep rates higher for longer. Not super high, uh, as we've in the past, but they will be higher for longer. The reason we can be positive on risk, data aside, <laughs> cash on the sidelines. There is just so much sitting there looking at our investor flows, and we put out reports on this recently. There's no conviction. People almost like limit underweight risk assets, and it's quarter-end rebalancing, month-end rebalancing. We've had another adjustment lower. People are underweight risk relative. It's a benchmark. We're seeing that in our data. And that in itself is a tactical reason to see risk on across all asset classes.
6: So I think the Nasdaq has had one of the best quarters going back to 2020, Jeff. Now, this quarter still got a couple of days to go. But based on what you just said, Jeff, where's your favourite place to take risk at the moment?
7: Uh, well, and right now, um, I think well, within FX, you know, we are looking at emerging markets. You know, this is the area which was heavily sold last year. I look at our month-end rebalancing models. You know, we're looking at uh, being positive on the Mexican peso. You know, for example, uh, we're seeing buying in um, Eastern European uh, sovereign debt, and you know, that's where you get good nominal yield, maybe good real yield up ahead inflation in Europe slows um, as well. So, really, I would favour EM. But if you look at the EM beta to um, tech, for example, you can see that they're probably quite aligned right now, and that's why I you know we are. Uh, you know, seeing risk rally across the board. But let's be clear, this is less of a fundamental story, more of an asset allocation story.
6: Hey, Jeff, I hear you. Thank you that, for that, sir. Jeff, you there, If we in one well Nobody ever says make it
0: complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources, from clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients nationwide is on your side nationwide investment services corporation member finra columbus ohio
1: take your business further with the smart and flexible american express business gold card you can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month like transit u.s restaurants and gas stations that's the powerful backing of american express Four times points at up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com business gold card.
0: Right
2: now, the balance of power shifts to Providence, Rhode Island. Wendy Schiller, absolutely definitive at Brown University on American uh, history. Wendy, when you watch these hearings in the ballet and the political posturing, how close are we to the debate that Andrew Jackson led in the 19th century? We've been doing this, not for decades, we've been doing this for centuries, this distrust of fancy people on Wall Street.
8: Yeah, Tom, uh, we can go back to Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, right? I mean, they're big fights really centered around uh, the role of private industry, private economy. How much should the government subsidize, uh, incur debt, uh, backstop debt? This is all Alexander Hamilton versus Thomas Jefferson at the very beginning. And in the end, Alexander Hamilton won uh, And Jefferson lost In the sense that we did have a centralization Of financial power And we do have government backs Of debt, as we've seen, or bad mistakes (coughs) just And, you know, Ron Wyden, Senator Wyden's uh, You know, it's not an accident this is coming out Today, because the Democrats really Need to show that in other realms They're going after rich people They're going after banks that mess up right? So this is not an accident this is coming out Today, as I just said, um, because the Democrats really are in, in trouble here in some ways, right? And many Democrats are, more than a few, voted with the, the deregulation or the loosening of regulations in 2018 under the Trump administration for banks like SVB and, you know, this is a problem for them. They can go after, you know, somewhat the banks But on the other hand, they allowed this, you know, or they participated in the deregulation.
2: And so now, that and they're in the administration now that has to clean it up. Wendy, Wendy, it's clearly documented the Swiss people are livid over the Swiss failures in banking here. Bring it to the present. Are the American people engaged? Not so much in these hearings, but in the debate about our collapsed financial system centered around two collapsed banks.
8: Well, I think the American people, uh, you know, are starting to think the government just doesn't work on any dimension. We've seen sort of they can't keep us safe, they can't keep our money safe. We just went through this. And when I say we, you know, there are no, the vast majority of Americans remember the Great Recession and the banking crisis. It's not that long ago. So this just compounds the sort of distrust and lack of faith in the federal government. And if you are a party that believes in government, like the Democrats, That's a real political problem for you when you're in charge.
4: Yesterday, there was a lot of finger pointing at the Federal Reserve and their lack of uh, really enforcing some of what they saw at Silicon Valley Bank, at least in the US side of things. What is the policy implication
8: of some of that finger pointing? Well, Lisa, that's a fantastic point because we have a sort of quasi-private massive bank re- overseeing other banks. It's not a really ideal system for enforcement and regulation. And, you know, uh, Elizabeth Warren will call for the Federal Reserve to do something or the executive branch, but in the end of the day, Congress has to redo or pass another law, and then regulations have to be issued, and we all know regulations can be influenced by lobbying or court cases. So it's a long road to actually beefing up enforcement. In the end of the day, the simple picture. Is is that the federal government did not properly oversee what this bank was doing and didn't stop them before it was too late.
4: Let's say that they do successfully shunt the
8: blame over to the Federal Reserve, as they're
4: trying to do, and basically the lack of oversight there. This is my question. Then what? Does this basically remove some of the independence of the Federal Reserve? Does this call for some sort of increased scrutiny or increased muscle? I mean, What is the natural step with respect to some of that criticism?
8: Well, Lisa, this is where you have to go to the power of the banking and investment industry, particularly in terms of campaign contributions and lobbying, very powerful forces and voices, and say, listen, don't blame us for the, you know, the, the, the laziness or the carelessness or the greed of one bank or two banks. You know, the rest of us, especially the big banks, we do what we're supposed to do. So I think what America, the American public might veer towards is sort of giving bigger banks. They trust them more. They seem to be stable. The government bailed them out already once. Uh, maybe giving them more power in the system, which, would, of course, we know would be very bad for regional lending. So I think this is a, a case where um, the federal government, uh, meaning the Biden administration, has to pick a side. Are you going to try to intervene and control the Fed? Trump actually tried to control the Wait. Fed, and some might say he did. Um, in terms of interest rates so that's the big question mark do you try to exert more control but then fail again and that's the puzzle for the Democrats
4: the irony of this is not lost on a lot of people that basically we have gone from emphasizing a decentralization of banking to now the big banks are better and the bigger the better I mean can you give a sense of the potential political read-through of that
8: well, I think, again, it's one more layer, I think, of government, or one more layer of sort of people feeling, you know, disempowered, that they now they have to go to the big bank. Those restrictions might be hard. They may not know the banker they're dealing with it, maybe just on the phone with somebody they never met, you know, closing regional branches, which big banks seem to be doing. These are all ways in which the average American feels less connected, and if you start to feel less connected to the economic system, Alexander Hamilton said this, you will then feel less connected to the political system, so it causes problems not to for the economy, not just for the economy, but also for the democracy.
6: Hey, Wendy, wonderful to hear from you and tie those things together. Wendy Schiller there of Brown University.
2: Someone who studied this, of course, is the gentleman of that interview, David Rubenstein, joining us now, co-chairman and co-founder of Carlisle Group. It's a happy David Rubenstein as he joins us today from his Duke University. Uh, Thank you, David, for joining us from Duke this morning. So much of this is a distrust of these major banks. How did Jane Frazier frame that you can trust us this time in this big crisis?
9: Well, for those who don't know, Jane is, uh, it's hard to believe, but after 250 years of our country's history, she's the first woman to head a major money center bank. Uh, she's a native of Scotland, but educated here at Harvard Business School, worked her way up at City over many, many years, and for the last two years has been the CEO of the bank. Um, Her view is that the banking system is in pretty good shape. Obviously, there are a few problem-childs and they're being dealt with like Silicon Valley Bank and maybe you could argue First Republic (coughs) Bank. And I think what she's saying is that the banking uh, community is coming together to figure out how to solve some of these problems and not relying only on government assistance.
2: We've spoken today, David Rubenstein, of say there were three big Swiss banks in our childhood And now there's one, I guess. We'll see how that works out. There's also been the turmoil in American banking. Do you suggest in your conversation with Jane, and for that matter all of your contacts, that things are being sped up now for the major banks, that they're going to have to move and act strategically faster in the coming months?
9: Well, in the crisis of 10 years ago or so, uh, the major banks were, to some extent, with one or two exceptions, (laughs) undercapitalized. Now the banks are, the major banks are, are well capitalized, leaving Credit Suisse aside. They're well capitalized and therefore they have more of a uh, ability to help other banks. And so as you saw in the case of uh, First Republic, uh, the major banks put together uh, money that would go into First Republic as deposits. And uh, hopefully that will shore up the situation until a more permanent resolution. But I don't think we have a crisis where JP Morgan or, or Wells Fargo or, or Bank of America have financial problems or, or City. But they clearly, uh, everybody's always nervous when there's a a banking problem. But I think this one's reasonably under control.
4: Do you think that this is the best PR move that ever happened for big banks? Because they can basically come to the rescue, be the good golden children, and all of a sudden have politicians coming out and saying, you guys should all be more like them.
9: Well, I'm sure that that might have been in the back of their mind. But uh, the truth is the U.S. government used to come in and kind of resolve these things. But in this case, Uh, Jamie Dimon, although he's working with Janet Yellen, uh, has taken the lead. So you have banks putting in the money in First Republic, and uh, that's unusual. You don't usually see that in a kind of voluntary basis, but I think it's good for the system, and it shows how uh, supportive the major banks are of any problems that they see in the banking system.
4: I love that you were the one interviewing Jane Frazier because you're two behemoths in the industry, two behemoths in the financial system that really is the focal point of so many prognostications at this point. From your vantage point and with your discussion with Jane, do you get the sense that there truly is a mass wave of credit tightening that is coming upon us that is going to really become clear in the second half of this year?
9: Well, interest rates have been going up steadily as we know this year and as a result uh, there's, there, there are consequences. One of them is supposed to be a slowing down of the economy and higher unemployment. But one of the other consequences, obviously, is some banks are, are hurt by this. Uh, the general occurrence when, when interest rates go up is it probably usually helps banks a bit because they can charge more than they otherwise going to charge for, for loans. But in this case, what you're seeing is that some banks uh, had a lot of securities which become worth a lot less when interest rates go up because they had bonds or treasury bills which go down in value as interest rates go up. And that produced a, a credit hole, obviously, in Silicon Valley Bank and probably in some other banks or some modest credit holes. So uh, it, raising interest rates has not been an un-varnished, uh, a good thing for the banks. Though generally, when interest rates go up, it's not that harmful to banks. Right now, I think the banking system is in reasonably good shape, though.
2: David, you grew up basic in Baltimore. There's going to be a House committee meeting today going after fat guys like you, the fat cats out there of global Wall Street. I want you to speak to House Republicans today with their immense distrust of the kind of people that blew up SVB. What do you say to people representing a broader middle class of America that say, who are these guys and why are we putting up with them?
9: Well, whenever somebody loses money, uh, governments always come in and say uh, who's at fault. Certainly, it's not the government. The, the government would say it's never at fault. Um, so I'm not surprised that somebody will go after somebody that's lost money uh, for, 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 for shareholders and so forth. But as beating up on uh, uh, Wall Street types or, or finance people is, is a relatively common experience, I don't think people are going to be shocked by it. In the case of Silicon Valley Bank, they clearly did some things that the regulators should have been more on top of, and I think the Under the banking regulations and laws, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank in San Francisco was aware of it and was working on it, but I don't think they did enough, uh, quickly enough to take care of the problem.
2: Oh, that's the question, David, the quickly enough of it. Can we legislate the courage to be quickly enough?
9: Um, Whenever you have a financial problem and something goes wrong, um, you always try to have a fix. So Dodd-Frank or Sarbanes-Oxley, But the ingenuity of mankind is such that they can always figure a way around some legislative or regulatory constraint. And so I don't think we're ever in our Mm -hmm. lifetime or anybody's lifetime going to solve all these financial problems. There's always going to be somebody taking advantage of some rule. So I don't think we can fix it overnight. And we can't just point a finger at somebody and say, it's your fault alone.
2: David Rubenstein, thank you so much from Duke University uh, this morning. An important conversation, Mr. Rubenstein, with Jane Frazier. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, Tune in, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keane, and this is Bloomberg.